Hey, 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 welcome. It's been a few days. Buddy's owner, Arizona Schnoodle Walks. Yeah, I'm actually midstream. Uh, um, midstream today. Already started walking, bud. I'm outside the gate down the street. It's uh, January 24th, Friday. And it's 10. 20 and in a few months this will be too hot to walk it's uh 59 degrees a nice refreshing 59 degrees and as usual i'm struggling for a podcast title and topic and what is this podcast what's was it uh what's in it for you well you get to listen in on some ruminations from somebody who's who's got stress in his life right um and on the one hand i think Man, I got a lot of stress in my life. And can I manage it? Can I control it? What do I focus on? What's my brain at? My brain is so stinking active that it uh, flirts, flirts around, flitters around, flitters around, possibly. So yeah, morning. You gonna go start running now? One mile uphill, though. Did you go all the way up? Nice, nice. You're done. Okay. So there you go. What did we hear in that? Somebody walking down the street. Your podcast host with Bud. And I need to be with people. (laughs) Right. So you are my people. I'm with you. Yeah. Yeah. So, I don't know. I don't really have much. I mean, there's tons of thoughts in my head, right? That's, that's, uh, if I'm breathing, I'm thinking, I guess. There's a, one of my favorite books. Maybe I should think about that book right now. You know I'm dead when I stop talking. I think, I think, is that it? Or is it, I think it's, no, it must be when I stop talking. That's probably it. Titles, right? When I stop talking, you know I'm dead. So now I got to double check that because I think that's the name of the book. And uh, I don't know, I wonder how many podcasts now are just people like, doing what I'm doing. There's a lot of people out walking around, but they're not talking. When I stop. Yep, there it is. Okay, because the emphasis is on the beginning. When I stop talking, you'll know I'm dead. How come that's not popping, man? Oh, there it is. Okay. There it is. Great picture of a, a guy, Jerry Weintraub, in, or in German, that'd be Weintraub. Traub. Weintraub. Wine grapes. Or wine dreams. I think it's grapes. Yeah. It's wine grapes. When I stop talking, you'll know I'm dead. Useful stories from a persuasive man. So I kind of identify with that guy. He tells some of the funniest stories. And maybe you get, maybe I tell funny stories too. But the stories I tell, I, I guess I present them from the angle of humor. So I'm really analytical, thinking, critical. So I've, I've like these cognitive biases. I've may have talked about those before. And so I just came up with a new 
cognitive bias because there's like a list of like 32 of them. And I think comedians have a humor bias. It's kind of like attribution bias. So attribution bias is I don't like that person. So they did something. So I'm going to attribute the worst possible motives to that. <laughs> and, and that happens. If you think about someone that you have some conflict with, there's a really, really good chance that you're probably attributing the worst motives to them. And I can spin a story about how this elder, like basically told me my circumstances suck because I'm in unrepentant sin with the church, right? Like with, with the elders leadership and basically says, well, you have authority problems. You, know, you have an issue with authority. And sadly, I mean, this is, this is also part of the religious, organized religious thing. And there's probably a lot of people that do, like me. I mean, I'm, I'm one of seven billion people on the planet. And you are one of seven billion. So you you have your history. So this week I relived my my iron story. It's probably the third time I've thought about this week, maybe fourth. The first time was very emotional. And, and some people would say, well, you just got to get over that. I was like, yeah, and my sister did that too to me. And my sister's like the key piece in the puzzle. So it's not a pleasant, it's, it's kind of a weird story because it's not pleasant, of course, but it's also not painful. And it's one of those things that you, people would probably say so easily, other people who didn't experience it would be like, well, yeah, you just got to get over that. You just got to get over that. So let me tell you the story. And um, I only know this story because I'm the youngest of three um, older brothers and sisters. So there's four kids in the family. And I'm the youngest. And the three older ones are six, eight, and ten. So the humorous, joking angle is like, well, you're just a mistake. <laughs> you're the surprise child. <laughs> so you're <laughs> there's a podcast stories from the surprise child. And, and many people probably think, well, I shouldn't even be here. Not me personally, but even there's probably millions of people on the planet who can look back at their life story and go, I survived this. I survived that. I really shouldn't be here. Right. And I, that's not the emphasis of the story. The reason I bring that up is to set the setting that I've, I'm, I'm estimating I was probably 20 months old, right? 20 months. Not an easy number like 18 or which would be a year and a half. And because I'm big on accuracy, I probably could go Google it, like whatever. I can probably get the date now. It's Sunday. Easter Sunday, 1963. Okay. I was born in July of 61. So I'm not quite two years old yet. So if Easter was in April, that's three months. So I might be 21 months old. Right. But I, it had to be Easter Sunday because the setting was at my mother's parents farmhouse in Michigan, Southwest Michigan. And uh, over my lifetime, which is more than 50 years, I've well, you can do the math. It's uh, coming up on 60. 
Um, this story has been alluded to by my father, but most of the details come from my sister. And I tried to verify with my mom and I was confused why my mom doesn't recollect this at all. And last night, I think I know why. <laughs> so, so the situation is Sunday afternoon. It's about a four hour drive home. And I, this, this could easily be, you know, a story where someone is really embittered against their father. So I'll just, you know, let you know that I'm not embittered against my father. Although it was, you know, this, what's what I'm about to tell you is like really awful. Uh, what a father would do to a kid, right? <laughs> so I'm chuckling about it, but because there, there's no really sweet ending to it. But this is kind of like a therapy session too, right? If I was, this is like my self-therapy. And I could probably pay someone 150 bucks an hour to listen to me and talk to me. And uh, and they'd be compassionate listening to me. And they would uh, maybe comment about like, oh yeah, that, that's called this. And that's, uh, yeah, that may be why you're OCD or, or something. But I... I really don't want to categorize. I'm really, I'm one of 7 billion people and my story is unique. It's unique. It's a, a particular, but it's maybe also a universal, as I've heard someone say. So the universal part is, is the early childhood trauma. Trauma, I guess you'd say. So uh, Sunday... Easter Sunday, my dad uh, is in a hurry to get home. I don't know what car it was, but it was, you know, a 1950s or 60s car where I don't even know if we had seatbelts at the time or basically you have a bench seat in the back and everybody's piling in the car, but where's Mikey? Where's little Mikey? Well, I'm, I'm 21 months old, so I'm not coherent. I have no vocabulary. I can I can't communicate. I'm just a 21-month-old child. And my sister, who would be, let's say I call me two at six, so she's seven to eight. She's almost eight years old. I'm almost two. She happens to be, like, in the living room. My dad's going through the house. Hey, everybody, let's go. Let's go. And I only know that because I just, I, I don't know it for sure exactly, right? But this is the piecing the story together. Because I'm 21 months old, right? So it turns out I was in the kitchen of this farmhouse that probably had stuff from 30, 40 years ago. And probably my grandmother probably ironed clothes in there. And I'm crawling around the floor. I don't even think, I don't know. Maybe I can walk. I don't know. Some of you mothers probably can tell me whether I could walk or not. I don't I think I was mostly on the floor. And uh, so I found myself on the floor, apparently. I don't know how I got there. I was in the kitchen. And I, I'm, I, I can't communicate, can't talk really well. I'm just a child, right? I'm developing. But my eyes must have seen an iron, one of these old irons, pretty much just plug it in the wall and it gets hot. There's no, there probably was no like spray, water spray or anything, but just your basic iron. And on the positive side, I must've been pretty inquisitive and I must've been looking at the, the outlet and looking at the cord on the iron, and I must have been thinking, hey, I wonder if this cord goes into this outlet. And 
uh, I must have done that. I mean, I, I guess it's possible that my, I, I just, it just seems so unlikely that on Easter Sunday in the afternoon that the iron would still be plugged in. And what's most likely is someone did iron in the morning because they were going to church for the most holy, one of the most holy Sundays <laughs> of the year. And so I was sitting there and so I plugged it in. I must have plugged it in. I just can't can't imagine that, you know, an adult would just leave it plugged in. So I, I, I really believe I plugged it in because I was curious. Because what happens next is, uh, my my dad apparently again this is where my sister's witnessing of the event comes in because my sister would say oh yeah your dad was looking for you wanted to get going to drive home four hours and he found you in the kitchen sitting next to the hot iron and dad said something like oh you want to see what a hot iron feels like do you and apparently he took my hand and put it on the iron. <laughs> guess what a 21-month-old child would do at that point? He's powerless to say, oh, no, no, Dad, I know. I'm not touching it. I just wanted to see what was happening. No, don't stick my hand on the iron. No, no, don't do it. You know, and ah, burned my hand, right? So what's a 21-year-old going to do? I can't talk. I can't explain. I can't beat him up. I can't do anything. I'm powerless, right? So, you know, nowadays we'd say, oh, that was abuse. Your father abused you. <laughs> and it's true. He did, right? Right? I mean, that was awful. My dad was awful. But guess what? People do stupid things, right? Now, if he did that every week, there would be a pattern of abuse. But I would learn over 50-some years that deep down, my dad is uh, really a good guy. You know, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't sadistic or anything. And I actually cut him a lot of slack with rethinking the story as... Apparently, when I was two, which is only a few months later, my dad was basically in the hospital with thyroid cancer. And he, I don't even know what the timing was, but he might have already been getting chemotherapy in 1963, which was not, like, really well understood, right? And what the impacts are. So they, you have cancer, thyroid cancer, you're going to... And you don't know what to do about it. And you go, this guy's going to die. So let's throw some chemicals at it. New research, new technology. Uh, if he has psychological problems or rage from it, well, we don't care because he's going to die anyway, right? So I don't know if it was rage or chemotherapy. That's, that's me cutting him a ton of slack. But what's the impact, though? Because, I mean, I'm 21 months old and I'm still processing it now you know, 50 some years later, like, what did that do to me? Right. And as my sister told me that story, like two years ago, and I went and asked my mom, and I said, Hey mom, it, do you remember dad, like sticking an iron on my hand? And I'm thinking like, well, oh, and my mom's now like 92. And I'm thinking, well, she's probably not going to tell me the truth. Right. Like, like she's probably going to be protecting her husband who's passed away eight years ago or something. And uh, she's like, no, I don't remember that at all. <laughs> and I'm just like shocked. And I'm like, I think I remember it happening. And my sister's telling me like exactly it happened. It's not the kind of story you just make up and just, you know what I mean? It's like, and what's the benefit to my sister to make that story up, right? And I'm thinking like, I think I remember now that, even at 21 months, I think what probably happened was my, my dad, like, impatiently did that, realized how stupid it was, felt terrible about it, handed me over to uh, 
my mom in the car and seeing that he was really impatient and everything he probably probably uh wanted to forget that that happened he was probably felt really guilty about it and uh this morning so that that truck's not going to win any nascar races is it but it did it ever? No. <laughs> but you you liked it. It's good. It's good racing. You like racing? Yeah. Yeah. It was more just a truck kind of fell on my lap. What? Not yeah. looking for it, but yeah, I'm a fan of NASCAR. So cool. Yeah, cool, cool. All right, have a good day. So I'm out here by the by the wall here. I don't know. Maybe the. Maybe those guys were stealing stuff. Who knows? <laughs> I'm so gullible, and I think everybody's so wonderful, which it ties into my story with my dad. Well, maybe it doesn't. I don't know. So, well, I definitely have trust issues, and uh, and maybe maybe I overly trust people just to test them to see. I want to know if this guy's going to burn my hand or not, so I'll give him an opportunity by being vulnerable. And then if they burn my hand, okay, I know, now I know this person's burning my hand. But that, that's more uh, later on in processing this story. So back to the story. So I, I have a feeling that I I think I can just sort of picture myself being held by my mother and crying, of course, crying. And my dad's hopping in the car in a hurry. And my mom probably, this is where the revelation came last night. I bet you my mom probably said, hey, what, what's uh, what's wrong with Mike? He's crying. His hands, he's like, oh, he burned his hand. <laughs> and, and this is the sad part for my dad, too. This is like his sad situation because he, I mean, what's he going to do? What's he going to do? Tell his wife? Like, oh, he was playing with the iron and I decided to... Uh, to burn his hand, he realized it probably wasn't a good idea, right? Right away, and, and so he's not going to tell his wife, like, "Oh, I really feel bad about this." But I saw Mike on the floor playing with the uh, iron, and and I thought, you know, hey, I, this is an opportunity for me to teach him a lesson. <laughs> so, so I just jammed his hand on the iron, burned it. Look at that blister. And now he's crying. Oh, it's not too bad. But I don't think he even told my mom about that. Hey, morning. So I don't think he even told my mom <laughs> that the re the real reason why um, he uh, my hand was smoking hot, burning blister. I'm bawling. Now, uh, when my sister retold the story, I was just like shocked a bit, you know, as maybe you are, right? But I mean, I, this is, again, me retelling the story and it's like, am I, am I just, you know, many people be like, well, come on, get over it. You're, you don't even hardly remember it. You wouldn't even remember it if your sister didn't tell you about it, right? And there's a lot of truth to that, right? Because think about childhood memory and you know, I probably can't remember it that well, but I do have this really weird, you know, the brain is amazing. And some of this is coming up because my grandson is four months old and he had heart surgery a month ago. And he went into emergency room uh, last night. And they think he, they thought they were worried he had some kind of virus. Morning. They were worried he had some kind of virus that would have been much worse than we're in right now if they think it's a bronchitis and he's having trouble breathing. But now he's four months old, going on five months. So, yeah, certainly he's not conscious. He's not verbal. He can't talk. So now I'm going to pay a special attention to my grandson. Of course, we want him to survive here and get through the bronchitis be healthy and live a long life, but I'm really looking forward to seeing him at 
20, 21 months and see what his kind of like development is just to kind of gauge, you know, what is a 20 month old capable of communicating, you know, uh, speaking, processing. Because, uh, you know, especially you mothers out there, you know, you've had kids and they, you've seen them grow. You spend all the time with them. And they can't say things, but they're processing. They're looking at stuff. They're staring at things. They're, their brains are forming something, right? So, I mean, obviously, well, not obviously, but I, I have my theory on how that impacted me. I think, and this might be projection on my part, but I think I was crying. My mom's holding me. So my head, I would be looking at the back seat. And I honestly think that one sister was laughing because she knew what happened, right? She's seven. She's able to communicate and talk. But she didn't, I don't think she ever said anything because like my older brother who was, would have been 10 and no, almost 12. And the other sister, maybe 10. The three of them are sitting there in the back bench. And I'm thinking, I'm, I'm crying. I'm, I'm processing, my brain must be processing like what the hell is going on here? What, what, what the hell? I was just, I wasn't going to stick my hand on it. Like, maybe if I was going to stick my hand on it, I probably would have, you know, slowly done it. Right. I mean, as a kid, I mean, hey, if I was smart enough to figure out how to plug the damn thing in. Right. And even even make the connection between cord and some weird shape on the wall. Right. Right. And this story probably gets repeated by millions of kids who end up playing with the outlets. Right. So, I mean, that's kind of like, haha, yeah, this has happened all the time. But probably what doesn't happen, or maybe it does, maybe it's happened more, where a parent gets angry with the kid and like, oh, you want to play with this stuff, huh? Well, okay, do that. <laughs> well, I think it's, and then, and then to have my hand held by my father and forced onto this thing that I don't want to do, right? Why would I want to do that, right? And it's supposed to be a lesson for me. Right. And I think deeply psychologically, man, that is in me. Right. It's in, I, it's like, I'm trying to say, like, doesn't that explain my disdain for a quote unquote authority? I don't trust authority. Right. I just don't do it. Now on the distribution curve, if you took 7 billion people, there's probably, a, there's a healthy respect for, healthy respect for authority, right? And that's where probably most of you live. And then there's like extreme, like way too much trust in authority. And then there's the lower end of the curve where there's no trust, little trust in authority. And I think what I'm doing is I think I'm bouncing from no trust in authority, you know, to way too much. I think I'm bouncing, you know, so like I'm like way too trusting. And then people maybe that I should trust more, I don't because I'm fearful, right? But then for some weird reason, I trust strangers, like that guy is out there in the NASCAR truck. I'm nice to him. I could have just walked by and not said anything. You know, it's a pickup truck. I'm being a little bit of a smart ass, you know, like, yeah, it says NASCAR on the truck, but that ain't, that ain't car I ain't racing in no NASCAR race. So I'm a bit of a smart ass and they're just either they're stealing some stuff, <laughs> which I don't know. I assume they're, they're okay people and they're supposed to be out there. But hell, they, they might be thieves, right? I don't know what they were doing. It's not my role to police it. But also revealing that thieves do stuff in plain sight. And they know that people like me are out there like going, well, it's not my job to police or ask questions. So, you know, I guess if I was a police officer, even off-duty, I might be curious because... 
police officers know there's a lot of thieves out there. So that was a little diversion. So I think I went home. Well, I, I obviously went home. I was, had no control of it. I think my sister said, well, you only cried for like 15 minutes. <laughs> I cried for 15 minutes, but I was ruined for 60 years, right? <laughs> and it's not so much ruined, right? So this is where I think these negative events, people say it all the time, take a negative event, turn it, God can turn it into a positive, right? But it's only, it only God's only turning into a positive is because I'm processing it and I'm thinking about, okay, how does this impact me? How does it impact me today in my life? Because most people, I, mean, I just feel like people are going to be like, well, just get over it. It's done. You got to move on. But here's the thing is certain habits, thought patterns have been literally burned into my soul. Right? My trust level is impacted. Right? That's why I bounce from probably over-trusting and not trusting the right people. So, and then it was compounded with other traumatic experiences growing up. And probably much worse than the hand-burning was the eight-year-old or sister who went through in the late 60s, early 70s, um, which would later be diagnosed as paranoid schizophrenia. So now, I think even on that ride home, I think I was crying, and maybe this is projection, but I said, what the fuck family did I get born into here, right? It's like, what? What in the fuck is this? You know, your father's burning your hand with a iron when you don't want to. Your your sister's laughing at you about it. The other two are clueless. Like, well, why is Mike crying? And my dad's too embarrassing to confess it. And I think my sister protected her father by by not saying anything. Like, my sister wasn't like, oh, dad burned my, you know, because my sister was protecting my dad and I think that's probably why my sister thinks she has like a special relationship with my dad who's passed away but I think she's like oh I've got a secret you know that my dad burned old Mikey's hand (laughs) but that's subconscious too because her brain isn't fully developed either right she's only like seven or eight so I don't want to over say too much about it or project too much about it but I think it's real. There's some truth to that. So I just pieced that together that my dad probably never told my mom what really happened. And then fast forward to 2011 to when my dad was passed away. And, and my relationship with my dad was kind of, it wasn't awesome. I mean, it had strain to it and a bit different, right? So like in today's vernacular, you'd say like, well, your dad wasn't very intentional raising the kids, right? Right, so like definitely wasn't intentional raising the kids, but he had a lot of things working against him, which made it impossible for that kind of raising the kids. So this is why when I hear books or hear people talk about fathers, you gotta be intentional. And you got to do this. And I'm like, yeah, well, I didn't experience that. And I'm just not that I'm withholding it from my own kids. I mean, I'm disappointed. Maybe I wasn't awesome father, right? I think I was pretty good, just like my dad. He was good. He burned my hand and he, you know. <laughs> but, 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 I mean, he, in general, with his constraints on him, like his cancers, he had lymphoma, almost died when two, three years old. And then he had it again when I was like 12. He had a kidney, he lost a kidney. His brother was in the same hospital and fighting cancer and he died. And, you know, so morning. And uh, so they, 
I was becoming used to disappointment. <laughs> becoming used to disappointment. And like, how can I turn that into a positive? I don't know. I just, and I think people external that haven't had tragedy in their life, they're probably like, well, you're so, Michael, you're so casual about tragedy. It's like, it's like you're apathetic towards it or it's just like my coping mechanism, I guess. I guess that's what you call it. And, and I've heard people talk about coping mechanisms as if your coping mechanisms are wrong. And I'm like, I don't think coping mechanisms are wrong at all. I mean, I think coping mechanisms make sense. You know, you got, you're trying to, your brain, your mind, your thoughts, you're trying to put it all together put the pieces of the puzzle together and they don't make sense, right? This stuff doesn't make sense. So I think that's why I'm so attracted to the complex, the, the unexplained. It's like, that's why I get bored with process. If someone says, you know, we're going to, you know, you got to, this is how we make fries at In-N-Out Burger, stand at the fry station, cut up the fries, do it. I mean, I'm super enthusiastic at the beginning. I'm like, I'm going to make this work. I'm going to make the best In-N-Out burger fries. But within a day or two, I'm like bored. I'm like, what am I doing here? The challenge has left me, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm really enthusiastic to start. Quick start, I guess they call that in Colby. Quick start, enthusiastic. And... Uh, so, yeah, I think it's kind of interesting on these assessments. The writing coach that I respect a ton is a quick start as well. So we probably have that in common. But she says she's an introvert and has other Myers-Briggs things that are different than mine. Like, what am I, ENTP? She's probably like I. She might be IN and then SJ or something. And so but I can bond and rapport over a quick start, right? Because I have that in common and maybe intuition or something, right? But not, I'm a feeler. She's like a judger. And I need, this is one of the things too, is we need people in our lives that have different gifts and personality traits for balance, right? For balance purposes. So I grow up with the iron burn. And I'm surprised I'm able to tell this story now without getting too much emotion into it. But it probably takes a few repetitions. I mean, they're professional therapists and psychologists who probably just nod their heads and go, yeah, that's exactly what happens, man. You know, you realize you had a traumatic event, you had to sit in the chair, what do they call it? Gestalt theory or something, you know, sit in the chair. And since I resist frameworks. So if a psychologist says, oh yeah, we're going to do the gestalt method, you know, I'm like, that's not me. I'm not German. I'm not, I'm not a gestalt, you know? So I resist a lot of shit. It's things that would help me, right? That would help me, but I resist it, right? So, um, and it's just like, I joke about the marshmallow tests and like, you know, the kids that they can do delay gratification, right? I probably was a quick start on that too. And probably delayed gratification, like, oh, okay. This nice adult who might burn me with an iron <laughs> has told me that if I wait 15 minutes and uh, don't eat a marshmallow, then I will get two. And I'm a quick start, obedient, initially, definitely initially obedient. Kool-Aid drinkers, whole other thing. So I'm in on it, right? But if there was ever a hint, if there was ever a hint that this was part of some kind of test, experiment, I would, I envision that I would swat those two marshmallows off the plate 
and into the corner of the room. Get so ticked off and say, I'm not playing your game, right? So that's how I feel, probably because of my, I, don't know, I guess it would be anger, right? You could, but it's a complex anger. It's the not being able to articulate, not being heard. I mean, I think in the fraction of a second when my dad came in and he's like, oh, you wanna, you wanna see what a hot iron feels like? I think in a split second, I realized this is not going the way I want it to go. And I am helpless to articulate and say, no dad, no, no dad, I didn't mean it. And I don't wanna get my hand. <laughs> And it happened so quick, but the brain is amazing because I think the brain was already doing that. Now, I could be imagining that. And the, the important thing isn't, you know, it's over with, right? So, yes, there's an element of, yeah, you got to just deal with it, man. It's, yeah, right, exactly. But there's some value in thinking about it. A little more deeply and uh, so I don't know I think that is quite an amazing story if I can tell it without emotion as I wrap up this podcast because we're home I'm thinking like so what now what uh, what for you what is what do you get out of it I I suspect many of us have early childhood experiences that impact us throughout our lives. And, and, you know, to some extent, right, 40 years, you should get over it. But it's the, the thing is, is like, it hasn't been a constant conscious thought all these years. It's been a subconscious thought that has morphed over the years. It's, it's moved into hey, um, should I trust this person? Or how do I know if I can trust this person? Um, You know, so that's kind of how that rolls out over many years, right? And maybe we we, uh, downplay these experiences in our own lives because we've shared them with other people and other people are like, well, because we're all, what's what's that to me, right? We're all, well, I mean, that didn't happen to me. So, I mean, you know, my dad died when I was two. So I never, he never burned my hand. So you, that's the thing, 7 billion people on the planet. We all have our stories, our own experiences. And overall, you know, on a distribution curve, I probably had, you know, an awesome father, right? And so the what now is for you to think about, um, you know, maybe maybe some things in your life early on happen kind of tragically like that. And they're hard to tell people about because the standard response that we've all heard is like, oh, we'll just get over it. It's not a big a deal. My sister told me that a couple years ago. And I laughed at my sister. I'm like, well, yeah, it's easy for you to get over it because it didn't happen to you. <laughs> and and you may have those uh, experiences in your history that are very unpleasant. And as one of my friends says, like the sacred wound. That's like one of my sacred wounds that and the years of trying to figure out uh, paranoid schizophrenia right so in the late 60s early 70s 30 40 50 year old phd doctors who spent their careers in mental health they couldn't figure it out so why am I putting pressure on myself as a six, seven, eight, nine, ten year old 
who sees the impact on the family of that experience. And it, and, it, and I think it does impact my relationships. Like I'm not harmonious. I don't know what, um, I talked about that before, but I, I, I imagine these life experiences kind of like, in a way, I, uh, whatever the debate topic is, or, you know, we, we, we have all these surface, surface arguments going on in society. And like whether the Kurds or whether we're doing the right thing with Kurds, doing the right thing with China, North Korea, you know, and we're all armchair quarterbacks. And there's so many people bullshitting about one side or the other. And I'm starting to see, like, I can enter into the fray and argue. And one of my other, well, part of the my ENTP description is debater. So I, as it says, clear up, debate both sides of any issue. And, I, and I'm seeing my desire for inclusion, including others. I, I was puzzled the last couple of weeks, like, how does my lack of interest in harmony or being harmonious, that just doesn't seem like it should fit with including. But uh, uh, it does, it does. I mean, in, in a weird way. So like, this is where I'm misunderstood and people say, you know, you're contentious, you're contrarian. And I sit there dumbfounded like, well, yeah, uh, but dig a little deeper people. So there might be people that what now for you is like, okay, yourself, what do you have? And then think of other people like you may be, may have been raised in the most wonderful, loving, leave it to beaver house with a father that took you fishing and took you on date night and took you out and did all the things we talk about today that makes for a wonderful father and mother and, and everything in your family was howdy doody, and you might have even been the youngest in the family. And the three older kids were just so brilliant, and they went to Harvard, Yale, and MIT. And you come along, number four, and you go to Stanford, you know, because the family moved to Monterey or something, you know. I mean, <laughs> and so, and, and the tendency for us is to think and upset about. Like, well, only if I grew up in that family, if I only grew up in this family, then, oh, then my life would be better. But there's so many examples of people that come from really messed up backgrounds, way more messed up than, than my family. And maybe your family was like way messed up to you. And the thing is, just like my sister who says to me, uh, well, you only cried for 15 minutes, just get over it. Your story, if you have tragedy, if you have that, then it's not comparable. It's like, you know, iron on a 21 month old doesn't compare, you know, to some of the multiple millions of abuse that is reported and we know about it. I mean, this, you know, the thing is, is like, this is mine is like an unreported abuse and I'm glad it was unreported. Right. Cause I, my dad didn't mean to do it. It's one of these flash flash events for him. So I, I hope you don't have a deep, deep wound, you, you, but, but again, the sacred wounds are our growth too. So how do I grow out of my, lack of trust. I mean, I, I just, I suck at evaluating people. I just think everybody's like great and they're looking out for my best interest, which is so screwed up. Right. So I need people around me who support me, recognize my gifts. And then if they're super gifted in some things that I'm weak in, they don't get pissed off at me. They realize I'm weak in that area and they step in to support me in that. Now I, I'm not, I'm speaking it and I'm saying it, I have to go live it too. And 
for you listening, I mean, so the number one, we already established, right? You, either, either you've had tragedy, your sacred wound. If it's mild, great. If you've gotten over it, great, awesome. It's probably still there, even though you're quote unquote over it. But then think about your other, your, all your relationships you run into. People are wounded. People are hurting. And that's the old expression, hurt people hurt people. So, I mean, this, you know, sometimes we listen to podcasts, we're so in a hurry. It's so formulaic that it's like, oh, we, you know, yeah, hurt people hurt people. Oh, yeah. Okay. Got it. And, and where's the, you, we need to be healing. I want to be a healing person. Not that it's, you know, and I want, I think you want to be healing. Wouldn't it be better? If you could mate, you know, a conflicted um, relationship or uh, making relationships better, that it's from a from a position of healing, that we're all hurt, we all have sacred wounds, and those wounds shaped our strengths, right? So, you know, my inclusion strength, which I think is the weirdest thing, comes from like being left out. And I really care about people that feel left out. And it's a weird thing, you know? So um, thanks for listening. I enjoyed sharing that uh, conversation with you. I wasn't, I'm really not in a mood to do a podcast, but that was therapeutic for me. So that's my 50 minute therapy session I give myself that you get to listen in on. So I hope that was uh, encouraging to you. Um, send me a note, send a message through some, some means on the Anchor FM app. And uh, may grace and mercy, I'm really in need of mercy in a lot of areas. And that leads to peace. And these things cycle around in a circle. So grace, peace, and mercy to me and to you. Have a great day.